Okay, so uh, I have prepared a message for you today. Uh, there's uh, quite a few bits of scripture. So if you have a Bible, uh, good plan. If you want to pull up a digital something or other, I even have a, a selection of Bibles behind me if you are into the paper variety of Bible. Because um, I think that it can be helpful to uh, read through those together, especially when they are a slightly longer section of Scripture. We're good. We're dropping things behind me. Okay. Uh, so when I read the Gospels, uh, which I um, am inclined to do, I, I like the stories of Jesus. I like Jesus' teaching. Uh, this year, one of the things that we've really been focusing on, because we've been through a season where we deconstructed quite a lot. So in reconstructing, we've been, instead of just saying, what is it that we have now you know, got problems with? It's also saying, what is it that we really think is beautiful and what do we want to build as part of our faith? And part of that process for me has been identifying more and more with the Anabaptist tradition and with the kind of central values of the Anabaptist uh, movement in history. And one of those core things for them is the centrality of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount uh, and his ethical teaching, uh, but also just saying Jesus is the supreme teacher of the Christian church. Funny that, you know, because we're Christians. Uh, so whenever there is any kind of confusion or conflict or concern or we're not sure how to interpret or whatever, we always just side with Jesus because that's the safest thing to do. And we try to make everything else fit with Jesus because turns out he's our Lord and Saviour, um, not Moses or Abraham or Paul or Apollo or any of those other guys, uh, well, we, we follow Jesus. So the centrality of Jesus' message, I think, is really important to our faith. And when I look at the Gospels, not just in Jesus' teaching, but in the way that he behaved, I see who he is concerned about. And again and again and again, I see this pattern of behavior for Jesus where he has compassion for those who are outcast, um, for the pariahs, for the unpopular, for the socially unimportant. Uh, for the sinners and the immoral, the sick, the poor and the excluded. And the scriptures labor over Jesus' love for these people, recording at length the stories where he interacts, uh, especially with women, um, again and again, because women were a, uh, a second-class citizen within the um, first century Roman world they, and, and in, within the um, Palestinian area. They just weren't uh, as powerful as they have become, especially in, in more recent times with the Me Too movement, women get listened to. But back then, Jesus again and again showing love and compassion and concern and highlighting the value of women was really progressive and radical and controversial. Uh, so with the woman caught in adultery and the woman at the well and the woman who had the bleeding disease, uh, we see Jesus' concern and love for those who are not normally um, given priority. Even in his treatment of people like Zacchaeus, the tax collector, again, a person who was on the outside of society. The myriads of crowds and children and beggars and broken people that were drawn to Jesus is the standout characteristic of his public ministry. Now, here's the thing, though. Like often we use this language to say, oh, Jesus was the friend of sinners and prostitutes. And, and there isn't actually any specific you know, like Jesus hung out with this prostitute. There are a lot of people who we assume may have had a, uh, a life of prostitution. Uh, but the reality is, is Jesus' friends were a group of fishermen um, and, a, you know, a, a zealot and a bit of this. And, a, you know, I think Matthew was a tax collector, like a bit of everything. His group of friends was not the upper crust of society. They were kind of bogans. Um, 
They weren't super educated. They weren't the most eloquent or the most rich. Yeah. But they were his friends and they were his people. But we do see him hanging out with the poor and we do see his compassion for women and for children. And, and that is the hallmark of when he is interacting with people is his unbelievable love for the poor. Jesus saw them. He saw them. And it's like when we go to the shops and, you know, in Canberra, we don't have, especially in, in, in winter, we don't have a lot of people um, begging for money because it's just too cold. They kind of all move up to Byron Bay at this time of year because it's too cold to be in Canberra and to be living rough. Um, but the reality is, is that we don't see people who are homeless. But Jesus saw them. Jesus saw people who were in need. He saw them and he identified with them and he had compassion for them and he um, was in solidarity with them. In fact, for the last few years of Jesus' ministry, he was basically a homeless wandering man who was living off the, um, the generosity of largely women who were supporting his ministry. Not only did Jesus see the poor, it's likely that Jesus was the poor. The most oppressed and most impoverished in particular were the people that Jesus is repeatedly seen offering healing, protection, comfort, renewal and validation to. Jesus saw the poor. In fact, when he started his ministry, he did so with these words. He said, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. That was how he opened up his ministry. He said, I'm here. Doors are open. I care about the poor. And I'm convicted, even in that alone. I could preach just on that one verse alone because I don't think that there are too many churches in our country who have a big sign on their door that says, I'm here to preach good news to the poor. We don't proclaim good news to the poor and, and, and we definitely don't pro proclaim woe to the rich, which is what Jesus does later on. In Matthew uh, 11, I'm just going to read a few verses here. This is not the, um, the bulk text that I'm going with today. But in Matthew 11, from verse 1 to verse 5, it's, um, it speaks of John's followers, John the Baptist. Uh, and it says, So when Jesus had finished giving instructions to the 12 disciples, he moved on from there to teach and preach in their towns. And meanwhile, John, who was in prison, heard about these messianic goings on. And he sent word through his followers. Are you the one who is coming? He asked. Or should we be looking for someone else? And listen to how Jesus replies. He says, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. Blind people are seeing. Lame people are walking. People with virulent skin diseases are being cleansed. Deaf people can hear again. The dead are being raised to life. And here it is. This is the ultimate thing. He says, and the poor are hearing the good news. Jesus saw the poor and you can't honestly look at the teaching of Jesus. Now you could maybe, if there are other sections of the scriptures that you could focus on and just study those things, you could maybe not notice that the poor was important. But when you look at Jesus, you cannot under any circumstances say the poor is not his greatest priority. I have come to proclaim good news to the poor and the poor are hearing the good news. You see, Jesus says a lot to the poor, but he also has a great deal to say to those who are rich, to those who are greedy. You see, now I define greed as someone who amasses more than they need. Who amasses more than they need. To hoard beyond what our needs is. That's what gluttony is. It's to amass and hoard more food than you can possibly eat. 
And in the, uh, in the Palestinian world at this time, there was no middle class. There was like 5% super wealthy who were made up of um, the Roman elite and the, um, uh, and the Jewish elite, the, like even the Sadducees and King Herod and, and, the, and the Roman kind of leadership. And then there was the poor. So 95% of people were peasantry. There was basically nothing in between rich and poor. There was significant income inequality, which, which strikes me to be very similar to what we see in the world today. Nothing has really changed here. There has always been the super rich who accumulate and hoard far more than they can possibly ever consume and ever possibly need. And then there's the poor. And before we get too far along here, I just, I just want us to remember we're not the poor. You might be able to come up with some justification that you are uh, a middle class. But there is no one in this room who is poor. There is no one in our immediate church who is poor. And that is not good. You know? like we, we, we connect with the poor, but we don't, uh, we don't identify and come into solidarity with the poor in the same way Jesus did. But we are not the poor. So when I read through these verses, I don't want you to be thinking, yeah, Jeff Bezos and, uh, you know, all those rich fat cats and, uh, and the corporations. And uh, yeah, those guys, they're in big trouble. But we're with them. We're not, we're not on the poor side of that fence. We're on the super rich hoarding side of that fence. When Jesus speaks and he lists sins, like he says, here's a list of awful sins in, uh, in Mark 7. Uh, right in the middle, next to adultery, is greed. To hoard more resources to ourselves than that we to have more than what we need, whilst there are those who who have less than what they need. And so, the first of the of the uh, scriptures that I want to read through today is in Luke chapter twelve. Uh, it's, it's it's quite a short section. This one in Luke chapter twelve and verse sixteen, and again, this is Jesus speaking. And he says, it says, he told them a parable. Jesus, he tells parables. I don't know if you've ever hung out with someone who, who tells stories uh, and they, they frame it as a parable, but really they're just trying to tell you something. Like they're actually just trying to, you know, like it's so thinly veiled. It's like you are the person in this story that I'm telling right now. There once was a rich man, uh, uh, you know, like uh, I'm just asking for a friend, you know, like we all know that he... This is not a very, like a, this is not a well-hidden parable. It's pretty clear what he's saying. He told them, Luke chapter 12, 16. He told them a parable. There was a rich man whose land produced a fine harvest. What shall I do? He said to himself. I don't have enough room to store my crops. I know, he said, I'll pull down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. Then I'll be able to store all the corn and all my belongings there. And I shall say to my soul, soul, you've got many good things stored up for many years. Take it easy, eat, drink and have a good time. But God said to him, fool, this very night your soul will be demanded of you. Now who's going to have all the things you've got ready? That's how it is with someone who stores up things for himself and isn't rich before God. Now, this is a particularly odd parable because normally when you have a parable, Jesus gives you a few characters to kind of choose to identify with. So you can like, 
kind of make yourself the good guy in the parable or the bad guy in the parable, depending on how the conviction falls that day. But in this particular parable, there's one character. What shall I do? I don't have enough room to store all my stuff. I know I will pull down my barns and I will build bigger ones. I'm very sure this guy did not pull his barns down and build bigger ones. I'm very sure this guy had someone else do that for him. In the same way that I'm very sure that this guy, who is a rich landowner, you know how you became a rich landowner in Palestine? Here's what you did is you had people who owed you money and when they couldn't afford it, you took their land and made them peasantry that worked for the land for you. So you became rich on the back of the work of the poor. Much like how there are lots of rich people now. That like when we think about the truly 1% in our culture who get rich off the back of the poor. And then they become indebted slaves. This is what this guy's done. He became rich because a whole bunch of people who couldn't afford to pay their taxes or tithes to him, a rich man, because that's who got all the money in, in, in uh, first century Palestine. And then he took their land and he makes them work their land. And when they then don't do that very well, they have to borrow from somewhere else. And eventually they become bonded labor. They become slaves to that land. And the rich man gets richer and the poor get nothing. So when it says here that he doesn't have enough room to store his crops, what he really means is that other poor bloke who plowed the field and planted the seed and reaped the harvest, and the crops that he reaped from that harvest that he has to give to me because I own him, I don't even have enough room to store that stuff. So what I'll do is I'll get some other poor bloke to tear down my old storage place to build me a bigger one. And then I'll be able to store all of my corn and all of my belongings there. And I'll say to my soul, oh dear soul, you must have worked so hard. Take it easy, eat, drink and have a good time. This is the inner dialogue of the greedy. It's I and my and me and mine. It's this perception that somehow he's the one who's worked hard, that, some, that somehow he has earned all of these riches that all of these poor people have slaved to give him. There is this narcissistic delusion that makes him think that he is separate to the people around him. He in no way identifies with the poor. He in no way is in solidarity with the poor. He doesn't care about anyone except himself. So much so that he thinks that everybody else is just there for his own benefit. And it isn't even the fact that he is wealthy that is the problem. That's not the accusation that's made. He is, it's because he isn't rich before God. It's because his self-indulgence is so great that he doesn't submit his wealth to God. And I would argue that in order to become that mega wealthy, you could not have submitted your wealth to God. Because I don't think that Jesus would allow any individual who is submitted to him to accumulate so much wealth while the poor are sitting outside. This man was stingy when it came to God. He was stingy like the, the Pharisees. Jesus accuses them and he says that they, uh, uh, they should have paid closer attention to the serious matters of the law, like justice and mercy and faithfulness. This guy typified a narcissism that was just as prevalent then as it is now. This is the story of a man who gained his wealth without any consideration for the poor and he is rightly called a fool. You see, how we earn our money, money matters to God and how we spend our money matters to God and how closely and how tightly we hold on to what we consider to be ours and mine and me and mine and I. What, the, the more that we hold closely to those possessions as though we somehow deserve and earn and have a right to it, 
The further and further away from submitting our riches to God we become. You might have a legal right to your belongings, but as a Christian, you cede that right to God. And God doesn't have a problem with people having wealth. There are parables that Jesus tells where the guy who is rich and, and, and is good with his money gets more. God doesn't have a problem with wealth, but he has a problem with greed. And he has a problem with people that don't identify with the poor. Here's the thing. Being generous is a profound act of spiritual warfare. See, a lot of people want to think that spiritual warfare is climbing up on mountains and praying over things with like altars and, and binding things and lifting up rocks and casting out demons. And like people think that spiritual warfare is this thing where you march around the place. And, but no, spiritual warfare is when you come up against the principalities and powers of our culture. Consumerism, greed, capitalism. All of, there is there so much sick and disgusting brokenness in the materialism that we live in every single day. And to be generous violates that broken kingdom. It, 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 it just stomps all over it. To say what I have is not mine, it's God's. And he can, he can freely distribute that. The way that the early church gathered together and they shared their belongings and they gave and no one was in need was so radical and dangerous to the, um, the culture that existed at the time. It was one of the reasons they got persecuted. Even when you wind forward and you look at the Anabaptists at the, the, um, the Radical Reformation, just after the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, and the, right then, they actually got in trouble because they shared and there weren't any poor among them. It was bad for the economy because of the way that they loved and shared and they refused to fight on and to keep their stuff. Being generous is an act of spiritual warfare where you say, I am going to identify with the poor. I'm going to give. I'm going to care. That's what it is to be like Jesus. He never withheld from the poor. I want to jump into Matthew 25. This is going to be the, the key text that I look at today. Uh, from verse 31. And uh, if you grew up in a Sunday school, you might know what that section of Scripture is about. Um, Uh, it's a pretty unfriendly section of scripture. Uh, like, like we often like to identify Jesus as this kind, cuddly fella. Um, Jesus is our savior. Um, he's, you know, like depending on the song you want to sing, Jesus is our lover. It's kind of weird and awkward. Um, but here's the thing. Jesus isn't just savior. Jesus is Lord. And a lot of people are happy to have Jesus save them. They like the idea of being saved from something, but they don't like the idea of submitting to a king and saying the king, I, I submit everything I have to him. I am, I am a servant of the king and he will choose to use me and mine and what I have for his kingdom. And this is one of those sections where, where Jesus, I think he speaks as a, as a, as a king and a lord, not, not just as a saviour. This is in Matthew 25, because this is a really kind of scary section of scripture. From Matthew 25 from verse 31, it says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, Jesus went on, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be assembled in front of him and he will separate, uh, separate them from one another like a shepherd separate, separates the sheep from the goats. And he will stand the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come here, you people who my father has blessed. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Why? Because I 
was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you made me welcome. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, Master, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to see you? And then the king will answer them, I tell you the truth. When you did it to one of the least significant of my brothers and sisters here, you did it to me. And then he will say to those on his left hand, Get away from me. You are accursed. Go to the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Why? Because I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you didn't welcome me. I was naked and you didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you didn't look after me. Then they too will answer, Master, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and didn't do anything for you? And then he will answer them, I am telling you the truth. When you didn't do it for one of the least significant of my brothers and sisters here, you didn't do it for me. And they will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. This is a really shocking parable that does not leave room for our justifications. And, and this is shocking because it goes against all of the things that we have been taught in our history about what it is to be saved. It's shocking because it says eternal life is bound to our treatment of those who are hungry, thirsty, uh, estranged, naked, sick and imprisoned. It doesn't say that our salvation is tied to a doctrinal statement. It doesn't say that our salvation is tied uh, to any kind of theological worldview. It just says, do you love the poor? Do you love those who have been locked up and put in bondage? Do you love those who are naked and who need to be clothed? Do you love those who are foreigners, who are strangers? Uh, do you love those who come to you who are desperate to be welcomed? This is the standard that Jesus sets for what it is to be a member of his kingdom. Go therefore and give everything you have to the poor and you will be sons. Oh no, it's, a, uh, it's not just about giving to the poor. It's also about loving your enemies and you will be sons of my father in heaven. See, not only are we going to love the poor, we're meant to love the people who hate us. This is how far gone Jesus is in his theology. Not only do you love poor people, you also love those who hate you. He, he leaves no room for negotiation. And this is particularly horrifying to me when I live in a country that systematically and by our policy imprisons the hungry people who are naked and thirsty and the foreigners who try to get into our land and seek refuge. It is the policy of our government that we are complicit with to lock up the very people that Jesus identifies with. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And if you have to choose between our national sovereignty and our economic and defensive good, 
or what Jesus tells us to do. I'm picking what Jesus tells us to do every time, which is why I'd make a terrible prime minister. Because I don't give a crap about our country. I give a crap about the kingdom of God. And in the kingdom, the poor don't go hungry and they don't go unclothed and they don't go without shelter and they don't go unloved and unwelcomed. Which is why we are not citizens of this world. We are simply passing through here. We are citizens of the kingdom of God and we should be fighting for his kingdom. And that means to love the poor. Jesus was born into poverty. And what's worse is, whilst he was still barely an infant, his family was run out of their country for fear of their lives from a violent dictatorial government and he became a refugee. Jesus doesn't just identify with the poor and the refugee. Jesus was the poor and the refugee. Last last week... uh, was the uh, on Thursday, the 20th of June, was World Refugee Day. And I am appalled and ashamed to say that with a few exceptions on my social media, because I follow a few uh, public Christian kind of voices, and a few other individuals, um, I'm disgusted that my social media was dominated by the narcissistic pledging of a celebrity millionaire and rich men in suits with a persecution complex who want to use that story to push their agenda. How we spend our money matters. And when we give our money to support millionaires fighting over their job contracts instead of to support the poor. And I shall say to my soul, oh soul, take it easy. Eat, drink and have a good time. Protect what you perceive to be your freedom. Oh, soul, let's build ourselves a bigger house. Let's build ourselves more so we can put the stuff we don't need into rooms that we don't even go in so that we can enjoy the things that we earned. Oh, soul, let us petition government to protect us. Let let us petition the government to look after what we want and what we need and who we are. And let's ignore the poor. Let's ignore the refugee. Let's ignore the asylum seeker. Let's ignore the naked. Let's condemn those who are in prison. Let's just do everything we can. Me and mine, the narcissistic dribble that has come out of our country in this last week in the face of the gross inequality that we are complicit with. And all of heaven weeps. How we spend our money matters. How we make our money matters. We are among the wealthiest people to have ever lived in a country of enormous abundance and all of heaven weeps. Because Jesus didn't spend this last week worried about the religious freedoms of a handful of people in a backwater country. That was not what Jesus spent his week worrying about. Jesus did not enter into solidarity with football players. He entered into solidarity with the poor, not the millionaires. I want to I read from you from Luke chapter 6, just a, a few verses from um, the recording of the Beatitudes there. It says, looking at his disciples, he said, blessed are you who are poor. For yours is the kingdom of God. And blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. 
And I wish that I wish that Jesus could say, blessed are you who hunger now for we can feed you now. And for those who weep now, because you can be comforted now and you can have more now and you can laugh now. But the reality is, is right now there are the poor and they are not happy and they don't have enough. There is the naked and they are not being clothed and the hungry who are not being fed and the thirsty who are not receiving water and those who are seeking asylum. But we reject them and we lock them in prisons. But Jesus identifies with them and Jesus says to them, yours is the kingdom of God and you will be satisfied and you will laugh and I will make these injustices right. I will come and the things that were broken and the things that were stolen and the things that were destroyed, I will undo those things and I will restore to you what should have been given to you. But woe to you who are rich for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. I cannot escape Jesus' love for the poor. And I can't escape the fact that by virtue of of the postcode I was born in and the country that I was born in and the opportunity and privilege and wealth that I was born into, that I can't escape that I will never be poor. So the challenge for me here is not to say, well, I will become poor somehow uh, and that will make it better. The challenge for me is, will I take the riches and the wealth that I have and be rich towards God? Will I allow Jesus to be Lord instead of just the guy who saves me? Will I allow God to dictate Will I use generosity as an act of warfare against the corruption of this age? Will I allow it to not, this, the greed and the desire to hoard more than I can possibly ever consume? Will, will I allow the generosity of the kingdom of God to pour out of my life? I'd like to finish with a... Uh, a benediction called the Franciscan benediction. Uh, this is uh, quoted by Philip Yancey. Um, May God bless you with discomfort at easy answers, half-truths and superficial relationships so that you may live deep within your heart. May God bless you with anger at injustice, oppression and exploitation of people so that you may work for justice, freedom and peace. And may God bless you with tears to shed for those who suffer pain, rejection, hunger and war so that you may reach out your hand to comfort them and to turn their pain into joy. And may God bless you with enough foolishness to believe that you can make a difference in the world so that you can do what others claim cannot be done to bring justice and kindness to all our children and the poor. Amen.